Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome to this episode of Engendered, which introduces the voice of survivors. We speak today with a survivor whom we will call Elizabeth, who shares with us a part of her story. Our hope is that through these survivor stories, we can help build a cultural literacy around what abusers do and how they exert their power and control, how it impacts victims and survivors, and what we can do differently to better support survivors and hold a space of non-judgment, acceptance, and healing for the survivors in our lives, many of whom have yet to reveal themselves to us. I've divided the story into these three sections, abuser tactics, signs of abuse, and upstander tips. Many of you may be aware of the term bystander and the bystander effect, which describes the social psychological phenomenon when people are less likely to come to the aid of someone in need when many other people are present. An upstander is someone who recognizes when something is wrong and acts to make it right, often requiring a great deal of courage and compassion to act in the face of fear. A common example of this is depicted in popular media when someone stands up to a bully who is picking on another kid at school. In the following introduction, Elizabeth shares with us the abuser tactics that were used by her ex-husband as it played out throughout their relationship. There's a lot of aspects in my life with him that were indicative of it. And I think just to preface this is, you don't realize this is going on for a long time. You know, in the beginning, it's kind of like the lobster in the water and you bring up the temperature slowly. And uh, for the lobster, it's too late by by the time they realize anything. But, you know, you're in a relationship with a person who you care about. And so you, in the beginning, you overlook these seemingly small things, you know, and you think, well, you know, it's it's a quirky part of his personality. Um, You know, well, he has a reason for that. And you kind of rationalize away these annoying things because you still have a lot of good things happening. And you recognize, well, everybody's not perfect. I'm not perfect which I think is a common theme that a lot of us come back to where when we raise these speculations, when we question about hmm, the dynamics of the relationship, we often bring it back to ourselves. Well, I do this too, and I'm not that easy to get along with. And we kind of make excuses. Controlling things, you know, it's like it's, it's the critiquing. I think that was a very strong thread in the relationship. I could never do anything good enough. I didn't dress the right way or whatever. And this is somebody who supposedly in the beginning of the relationship really just, you know, adored me, thought I was great. And then as time goes on, you know, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Or if we're going out to see friends or we're going out for the evening, I'd get dressed. And he'd look at me, you're not wearing those shoes with that, are you? Always some kind of critique. And and it became very clear to me that it was a constant eroding of of my sense of self-esteem. And it was and it's not it wasn't accidental. It's again chipping away at that other person. And years later when I was making the decision to leave, I remember sitting in the car driving along, you know, with him and just one of one of these these activities that you should be joyful. You should be looking forward to going to and sharing with this person. And it became as time went on just something oh, I had to endure. And I remember reflecting on all the things that I'd like to do in my life, maybe bike riding or going to the store or going to an an outing, always became aggravation, filled with aggravation and just struggling through something. So for instance, like bike riding, I like to just ride bikes and just take my time and, and enjoy it and look at the scenery. But when I started going out on bike rides with Tim, go faster, go faster. Come on, keep up with me. You're not keeping up with me. I wasn't in a race. That's one example of things that that I used to take joy in that he just made, you know, detracted from all of that for me. I like to do artwork, and it was him coming into my studio space and critiquing it. Oh, it should be this way. It should look that way. Oh, look how you keep your drawers. Well, you know, I didn't go in his office and mess with his office and critique him. That's his space, and I I respected that because I'm a great believer in respecting people's spaces, and, um, you know, how they keep them. 
you know, what is a mess to somebody is just the way somebody else processes things in their own mind, in that person's mind. But, you know, it was constantly chipping. There was no part of my life that was unexamined by him where, you know, I was safe from critiquing. And it just became incessant, you know, and it's just something I had to endure. I got to a point where if I got home from work first, or if he was away, for instance, especially, if he was away, I dreaded him returning home. You know, there was no joy in this person coming home where I was going to share my life with. You know, early on there was. You know, I looked forward to it. I really liked him. I loved him. But as the years went on, you know, it just became this person I was, quote unquote, sharing my life with. But everything was a critique. And it took me a long time. I was, I was a child who got teased in school. And it took a lot of years for me to build my confidence. So here I was with this person who was knocking it down, criticizing my appearance, you know, how I expressed myself, how I, you know, rode a bike, how I kept my house, how I cooked. He didn't even cook. And I mean, stupid things like cutting scallions or green onions. Oh no, you have to line them up and do this and cut them this way. So here's this person who doesn't even do these things, constantly trying to instruct me. So there's that, that erosion. And also to, you know, then the family members, my in-laws got involved in it as well because he opened the door to the in-laws, you know, criticizing me. So you become the open target. It is very typical when you're in the midst of a very stressful situation, such as an unhealthy and abusive relationship, for your instinct to indicate that something is not right, although the words to articulate what that realization reveals about your relationship might not come until much later. I asked Elizabeth to look back upon her relationship and to share if there were any abuser tactics that she now recognizes but didn't at the time. Early on, there's slides. I remember we were dating, and it's probably in the first year of dating. And, you know, generally speaking, I think early on, if I did something for him or got something for him, you know, he seemed to be appreciative. But I remember one time... I think it was Christmas or something. And I got a gift for him. And I and because he wore ties, I bought him a tie. And out of the blue, he just said, this is what you got me. You know, you know what you can do with this tie? You know what you can just shove it? You know, whatever. And, and, and I was just totally taken aback. And I'm thinking, where's this coming from? This is perfectly, there's nothing wrong with this. I just did something nice for someone. I'm not used to this, you know, where somebody's, you know, chastising me and just being ugly about a gift that I gave them. Absolute lack of graciousness and just just this negative, hateful anger towards me because I got him a gift. You know, I I don't know what he thought I should have gotten him. But that was kind of, that marked too a lot of gift giving with him as well. You know, he was never happy. I didn't give him his birthday card on time. But also too, you know, what happened certainly with me I found my own subconscious and maybe not so subconscious ways of kind of fighting back. So, yes, I, you know, his birthday would come up and I wouldn't give him his birthday card right at the first thing in the morning. But then, you know, if it was the day went on and then I'd hear from him, you didn't have the decency to give me my birthday card in the morning. You waited all day. This is an important day, you know. So it's these, I think, seemingly dumb things. But, you know, it created an environment of apprehension too, because now you have this person that's going to lash out at you. You've learned that, you know, am I going to be, are they going to be unhappy with me? And I don't even know what I've done for them to be unhappy with. I mean, all all my other relationships, you know, with friends, family, I don't have these kinds of dynamics. It's just this person who's just very angry, lashes out and treats me like I'm insignificant. Or, or everything's my fault, that it's, you know, if something goes astray, it's my responsibility and I'm, I'm the cause of it. So at one point, you know, I was, I was overseas and he came to see me at one point. And I went out and got special tickets to see a musical. And I was so excited, you know, we'd go out and do this and it was kind of a surprise. Well, you know, in the, in the rush of trying to organize and get everything together, I left the tickets back at the place I was staying. And he just blew a cork, you know. It's like, how could you do that? I can't believe you did something so stupid. Whereas to me, like if somebody else did that, I'd say, I would try to find a way to calm it. All right, so let's look at this. We left the tickets. All right, so we'll have to get a cab back. 
We'll try to hurry up. Maybe we can call the theater. My response to these kinds of things is, all right, how can we, everybody take a deep breath, and how can we figure out how to fix the situation? It's nobody's fault. These things happen. That's my approach. It wasn't his. It was this, this constant beratement, you know, oh, I can't believe you did something so stupid. You left tickets. So again, totally ignoring the fact that I went out of my way to buy something to help create a nice evening together, he totally just ruined. So there was no nice evening. I mean, except for maybe the time of actually watching the production where I could forget that I was sitting next to him. <laughs> um, but then again, you know, the production ended. It's like, oh, I'm with him. <laughs> you know, so um, that's that was kind of, those were a couple of early signs. And it's kind of scary when I look back and I go, why didn't I, why did I not heed my own advice? Because if someone came to me and said, oh, this person is manifesting these things where he's doing this to me or saying this to me, I have no problem saying to the person, you may want to watch out for that. You know, I would be cautious about that because it doesn't sound very fair-minded or uh, equitable in terms of dealing. And it, it sounds like somebody with a hot temper. And yet I found myself staying in this relationship with this person who, to be fair, at times could be very nice to me, but many, many times and disproportionately be a monster, quite frankly. And, you know, that that takes away from you. So I consider myself an intelligent woman, accomplished. I've worked very hard to achieve what I have in my life, coming from not having very much. I've worked very hard and I consider myself a successful person in many ways. And I still, you know, even in the relationship when I was out in the world, it was almost like a respite from dealing with him because I would go out and become part of an organization and people regarded my talents and my abilities and my knowledge base. And that was really a good feeling. But there was a point in one of my work situations where there was a male colleague who was clearly undermining me and sabotaging me. And when I tried to explain this to my then husband, who eventually he became my husband, so unsupportive. You know, I said, oh, that's all I ever hear about. You know, you're always whining. You're always complaining about this. And never was willing to listen to what was really going on at work and how this other person was actually harming me. And I, I have a strong feeling about when you're committed to somebody— you're supposed to have each other's backs. It doesn't mean you look at some things and you automatically take sides with somebody. You want to make sure that the, the truth is there. But basically, if you're going to have a helpmate, they're supposed to listen to what you have to say. They're supposed to be supportive. And if necessary, point out, well, maybe you could have done this differently. Okay, that's fair. But to outright not support this person you're with and take the other side and to minimize this person's concerns and how their work is being impacted by another party, you know, that's this is not workable. And it's not what is part of a healthy relationship, a give and take, and very supportive relationship. So I think one of the things that are clear signs and are abusive, and you know, a lot of people have gotten conditioned to thinking, well, you'll see bruises, you'll see black and blue. I was middle class. You know, middle class abusers don't always beat their partners. They're too smart for that. They use a lot of psychological strategies. They try to diminish you as a person. It's constant criticism, constant beratement. And then when they make mistakes as well, their mistakes become your mistakes. So your mistakes are yours, and their mistakes are also yours as well. There are a couple of occasions where my ex went out and purchased something. It's his money. You know, we both were working. He decided he needed something. Then he comes back and has buyer's remorse. And then, how could you let me buy this? I said, you're a grown man. You know, it it wasn't some huge expenditure that's going to impact our financial status. But, you know, you chose to buy it. It's not my job to babysit you. But that wasn't enough, you know. So it was constant whining on his part and critiquing. And then eventually, you know, that does affect you. You know, I, like I said, I, it, at work I could have respite. In my friendships I could have respite. But abusers like to sabotage the relationships you have certainly at work, but definitely with your friends. And if you're trying to become part of an organization. And there was a point that I was trying to, I wanted to take Italian classes. So I was going to class, I guess, once a week. And at this point we had our child. And it was always an excuse as to why, you know, I couldn't go. Well, actually this was before our child. And 
So there was really no impediment, but it was always, oh, do you really have to go? Could you stay home? I need some help with this, or, you know, I want to spend some time with you. So I was ending up missing a lot of classes. So I'm not, you know, benefiting from the coursework. So that was one of the, you know, many ways that I see as an, of an abuser, certainly in my case, trying to prevent you from improving yourself. So you want to move forward. You're trying to advance yourself as a person, even if it's just for your own gratification, you know, just self-knowledge, you know, expanding your knowledge base. But that's a threat to them. And so there's a lot of things I, that in the relationship I, it became clear to me that I was not going to be able to do, not without an you know, impediment. There's a couple of times that I've joined women's organizations, usually it was in the arts. And at one point I became, I was a treasurer at one point, and then I became a president. And we weren't even married at that point, but we were living together. And I kept it quiet that I became president. And we went to an event and he found out that I was president because somebody said so. And, oh my God, he just blew up. What? What are you doing becoming that? You don't have time for that. You should be, you know, taking care of me and doing other things. You have other responsibilities. You don't have time for that. Now, mind you, at that point, we had no children. We weren't even married. And I was doing something that was important to me and was helping, you know, move forward an issue and concern that I had. And so it was, it was good for me to get together with other, in this case, women artists the idea of me becoming the head of an organization, I, I think in some ways I've tried to reflect on this and, and I keep thinking how I think he compared it to himself, that he didn't feel he was moving forward, which nobody was stopping him from doing that. But I think it's, it's that mindset that anything positive you do will detract away from me, which is illogical and it's dysfunctional, quite frankly. And ironically, I find this so ironic because... He came from a very middle-class family. He had all kinds of accessibility to benefits. You know, his parents did everything for him, which is probably part, a large part of the problem. And here I am, you know, I've worked for everything, didn't come from much. And so I'm always trying to improve myself. And I have a thirst for knowledge. I like people. I like getting out and building a network of friends and support. And I like being helpful to other people as well. But this is not the kind of person I ended up with. And when you're a person trying to move forward, an abuser will always hold you back. It, you know, my brother always has an analogy of crabs in the pot. And, you know, if one of the crabs is just about to make it outside of the pot, the other crabs will pull them back in. And I think that that's one of the mindsets of abusers. And I think we see that clearly, you know, out and about in the papers and stories. And there's a very similar MO is the way they operate. It's always about taking down that other person, controlling almost every you know aspect, every minute aspect of that person's lives so that they are in charge of them. So we become their property. And if we question them, we're going to pay a bigger price. And because I'm not a subservient kind of person, I know how to get along with people, but I'm not subservient. And there was enough fire in my belly throughout all of these years that I never caved in and conceded to this. I acquiesce on some level to kind of keep the peace. And that's one of the things that I get upset about is like, you know, you, you constantly feel like you're keeping the peace. And which doesn't, you know, it's kind of a form of appeasement, but it doesn't really work out in the long run because these people will just, they become enabled to go further and further and they escalate. And if they're, you know, a family of abusers, their family members become aiders and abettors to that. So they become accomplices to the abuse. So they're, they're comfortable with that. And I think that's a very common story that many of these abusers have families who support that abuse as well. So there's no way you're going to get support from your in-laws or your partner's family. They're all part of that same mechanism. But the point is to erode you, you know, and the more you fight back, and I did fight back, you know, I, I got punished for it. I mean, there, there are times I still recall if we were having a discussion that started out innocently enough as like political or social, whatever the topic may have been, if I disagreed with him, he could not calmly have discourse. You know, it was yelling at you. It was always raising the voice, which I find fascinating in men where it seems to be an automatic mechanism in, in many men and many male abusers where they almost have this sense of like an unwritten code that it's okay to raise your voice and you're going to gain power by the volume of your voice and you're going to intimidate the other person. 
So many a night, sadly, I was kept up to two or three o'clock in the morning. You know, I'd go into the bathroom because I just wanted to end the conversation. He would never leave me alone. He'd stand outside the bathroom door yelling at me. So I couldn't get any escape. So he'd follow me around the house. So when you're engaging with these people in that regard, did he hit me in, on some of those occasions? No. Has he hit me? Yes. But in no circumstances, you know, it's enough for them to do the psychological assault, you know, an emotional assault, you know, and there's other kinds of assaults as well. You know, I, I in earlier in the relationship, at one point we were moving and I was carrying a box downstairs to to the apartment we were moving into. And I wasn't doing it fast enough, according to him. So literally, he put his foot on my back and pushed me down the stairs. I still look back at that and I'm like, oh God, what was the matter with me? Why didn't I leave then? But one of the things about abusers is it's not uncommon for them to move you someplace else. So I was not near family. So where was I going to go? I didn't, I didn't know anybody in the area. I was living in another part of the country from where I had grown up. So I didn't have family members nearby. You know, maybe if I stayed in my community or I was in my community, I could call my brothers and, you know, they could take care of them. But when you're isolated, which is very common with abusers, you're just thinking, oh my gosh, now how am I going to, how am I going to get through this? Where do I go? I want to leave. I don't want to stay here. I don't want to put up with this. I'm an educated person. But yet I find myself living a life like women who are less educated than me, who have fewer options. So I feel like on one hand, for all the advantages that I may have acquired through the years, I feel like I'm put back in that situation. So I feel like, my gosh, why did I get a you know, college degree? Why did I have these jobs? Why am I moving forward? Because it's not doing me any good because I'm still living with an abuser. And so it takes a toll on your life. It starts impeding you from doing things. You know, it starts cutting you off because, you know, if I join this group, he's going to get upset. If I go and have a friendship with this person, you know, he's going to be upset. Nothing will make these people happy. And the more you concede to them, the more they feel enabled and entitled to control your life and oppress your life. And if you argue back, they're going to make your life miserable, you know, so they don't have to hit you. And all it takes really is, you know, one or two times where they've exert physical control of you and you know what they're going to do. You know they're capable of it, doing it. And I think one of the things that always held me back is I was fearful of falling to a stereotype of, you know, the men and women knocking it, you know, having a knockdown drag out fight. I was not interested in that kind of behavior at all because to me that's just people who are very limited in the way they interact socially and with each other. And so, you know, I think for me, my solution was to try to keep the peace as much as I could, try to navigate it instead of being overtly confrontational because I was afraid that, you know, I might have to hit him, then he'd hit me. And I just kind of envisioned that thing. One of the things too, I lived with constant threats by him. You know, I would go back, you know, once or twice a year to visit my family. And it was a very clear message, you know, you need to be back in this number of days. You know, otherwise I'll do things, you know, like throw my clothes out the window or throw them out in the front lawn if I don't return in time. This this constant threat is put against you. Well, it's it's kind of like Beauty and the Beast. You know, like if you go back, you know, I think Beauty had to go back and visit her father and the Beast said, you need to be back by a certain time. You know, well, I was always threatened, you know, if I went past the 10 or 12 day mark that, you know, things would happen. And, you know, it's my personal belongings and things that I valued. And I just really did feel like he would do something. He would break something or destroy something. And, you know, I look back and think, well, maybe I should have filed a police report. Maybe I would have had a paper trail. Maybe I could have started a paper trail then. It would have been made future things easier. I'm not sure. You know, all I know is if I were advising anyone now, there's just certain signs to see. And, you know, if somebody's not showing you respect and support and a sense of dignity, you know, if they're not trying to take their your dignity away from you, those are really glaring signs. You know, when they try to, when they criticize you keeping company with your friends, if you're a healthy, well-adjusted person, it's not a threat. You want your partner to have a circle, you know, of friends they hang out with or have an interest, healthy interest 
that's just normal give and take. But when you find somebody who's questioning where you're going, how late are you going to stay at that party, or being you know jealous in some cases, who you're talking to, or why is that guy here visiting you? You know, a colleague. Those are really big signs. And I think early on in the relationship, don't let it get further. Don't let it get deeper. You need to heed those signs because it won't get better. It, people who demonstrate those things early on in a relationship, and there are signs there. But I think this is one of the conditioning of women. We like to be peacemakers. We think this person cares about us. We think they're affectionate towards us because they do know how to manipulate us. So they do something nice to us or for us. And we kind of try to keep that in mind when they do something wrong. And I just think this should be a basic flatline guideline for anyone, male or female. You know, if someone's trying to invade your space, control your space, critiquing you, then they don't really care about you. If he's so worried, you know, you're not going out of the house looking like a slob, but, you know, if he's so worried about what shoes you wear and he's trying to micromanage that and what you say and whether or not you stayed next to him enough times at the party or you might have come across too clingy, you're never going to make these people happy. Just like if you see these signs, don't get any further in the engagement or relationship, just run the other way because it's just going to be problems. And unfortunately, we we live in a society that's not going to help that right now because society has basically aided and abetted abusers for a very long time. Very rarely is abuse just physical. In fact, even in a physically violent relationship, there is usually some sort of coercive control and psychological and emotional abuse also present. Elizabeth shares with us the signs of abuse in her relationship. Let's listen to what she says. Regarding signs of abuse or how, you know, I think there were signs to me, I eventually came to understand I was in an abusive relationship, you know. I mean, and there were a couple of occasions where I was actually raped in my marriage, which people have a hard time understanding was I, you know, held against my will or, you know, or slapped around? No, didn't have to do that. I mean, one of the occasions was we had company and they were in the next room and he wanted to be intimate, if that's what you want to call it. And um, I felt like I had no choice. And I still remember having my head down and face down in a pillow and fearing that I was going to suffocate, you know, because I couldn't turn my head. And I was actually fearful of dying at that point. And there was another time as well where, you know, it was basically forcing me. So it's coercion. It's a coercive kind of thing. It's not like, like I said, you know, it's not somebody strapping you to a chair or tying your hands up. They're the invisible ropes and you're enmeshed in this relationship. You're enmeshed in this situation. It's kind of like this weaving that you've created and, you know, you're not able to pull the fibers apart. If you start pulling at one of the fibers, the whole thing will come apart, the whole tapestry. And I think it's one of those things that we learn how to keep the facade up. And amazingly, I learned how to do that very well. And you know, because I'm a very private person, the idea of other people knowing what was going on was just appalling to me. You know, because I was still grappling too with the degree of the abuse. Because again, we are conditioned as a society that it's about the actual signs, you know, of bruises and things like that. And and I remember at times thinking, when I started really reflecting on this, thinking it would have almost been easier if he smacked my face and left the mark on me because then people would believe me. But if you have no marks on you and you're coming and going, you're going to work, you still see some people, you go to the grocery store, it would be very hard to convince somebody that you were being abused and you you were being controlled. It's kind of like the hostage children that have been kidnapped and they find out years later they were with someone, and it's, but the child still went out and rode his bike. And people don't understand the invisible chains that abusers hold on you. You don't always see the chains that are tying somebody down or the or the the bonds, you know, and the ropes. They're an invisible construct but they bind you down nonetheless. And then you, because you also become, I don't want to say necessarily syndrome, uh, you know, Stockholm syndrome, but if you've been building a life, you know, now you have a home, you have a yard, you are in the community. And I worked and lived in the same community. 
there's a construct that you know, if you pull that block out from underneath in the, the, the early part of the armature, the lower part of the armature, everything comes tumbling down. And you're very cognizant of that, even on a subconscious level, that if you call the police, you've just crossed the line, and now you have a police report. I mean, looking back, I think it would have been better. I wish I wasn't constrained by social propriety or what I, you know, we, or, or the self-fear. I wish I was a little bit braver about standing up and recognizing, recognizing my strength that I actually had. And I think this is part of the problem. I think when you spend a long time with someone and they've chipped away that sense of self, you lose the confidence in being able to stand up for yourself and making that change and being cognizant that, yes, I can get through this. It may be ugly for a while, but I'm just going to find another way of fighting back and I'm going to end this and move forward and I will prevail. But you're at a place that you start questioning yourself and you start questioning, is it really that big a deal? When it really is. I mean, if you add them all up. But again, we don't deal with these situations as a constellation of incidences. We separate them. And when they're separated, they become easier to deal with. They become easier to minimize. You don't see the whole fact pattern, you know, in one big picture. And it may be a survival mechanism. Maybe you just realize, you know, your life is going to change. And maybe you're not ready at that point for the life to just be upended. I know there are women that maybe if their sole living is based on their husband's income or their abuser's income, they could be very fearful. I was earning my own income, and yet I still had that fear of upending everything. And when it was me, I guess I, on some level, I just convinced myself I was... I could manage this or we would get through this. Because also, too, there are cycles, at least in my case. There were cycles where maybe for a few months he was a nice person, so to speak. And then he would go into these bouts. I mean, there are times that he could walk into his office and, you know, everything was perfectly fine before that. And then he'd come out of his office and just like Jekyll and Hyde. And I didn't know where this stuff was coming from. And how cognizant... He was of that, I'm not sure. Maybe it was an intended strategy. Maybe it's just his imbalances, whatever. You know, I tend to think of it, you know, a lot of this I think is very strategic. I do think that abusers are very cognizant of what they do because they know who not to do them to. And I think that's a good barometer. When you think of somebody just snaps or somebody doesn't have control over their behavior, ask yourself, who is it that they would never do this to? And those generally are, are figures of authority. They know enough not to go against a police officer. They know enough not to go after their boss, you know, or somebody else who has some more perceived power than they do. But they go after people who they think have less power who or who won't will not be believed or supported. And that's a very key factor in, in abusive tactics and behavior. And then also don't forget they can take a perfectly strong person, you know, you know, a woman in this case, and who's confident and has something to offer. And, you know, you keep chipping away and you can really raise a lot of self-doubt in that person. And it's scary because many, many women have never left relationships that have been abusive. I have family members that never did that. And I have a grandmother who lived like that and died like that. And I will say that's probably one of the things that started me thinking, you know, and is another key factor as well. But that is probably one of the things that started me thinking, thinking about how my grandmother lived and died. And I realized I didn't want to live like that. I mean, she was clearly abused. She was beaten, burned with cigarettes. Other things happened to her. And so maybe I compared that to her and thought, well, you know, maybe on a subconscious level, I thought, well, it's not as bad. You know, we rationalize things. But I do think that I started realizing how my grandmother lived and how an aunt of mine lived. And I I think it's one of the things that started me evolving and realizing, how do I want to live the rest of my life? Is this how I want this to be? Where this other person who doesn't respect me, doesn't value me apparently, because I can never do anything that's, you know, pleases him. Do I really want to live the rest of my life with this person where all the joy is sucked out of my life? And I ultimately came to a decision that no. And that was not going to be. And there were other, you know, influencing factors.
Often in life, when confronted with crises or tragedy in others' lives, we struggle to know how best to respond and to stay connected, how to let loved ones know that we are there for them. In this next section, Elizabeth shares with us some upstander tips, how she wished her friends, family, and community could have acted differently when she sought help or advice or support in the past. I think the main impetus, I think the, the thing that was clearly crystallized things for me was my child. What happened was my former in-laws kept getting involved in my life and in, at my house, particularly my mother-in-law, who is an, an abusive person herself. And it was, it was encroaching, you know, their decisions, their wants, their desires encroached on my life. And I was, I was expected, quite frankly, it was made very clear to me that I was expected to be subservient. I was there to make them happy, you know, and I couldn't question, you know, what was going to be good for them. These people are definitely enmeshed in a very unhealthy relationship, you know, which as time went on, I, I de- definitely saw. But while I might have been willing to continue to put up with certain behavior for a certain period of time, I don't know that I would have done it forever. I think even if I didn't have a child, I don't really think I would have stayed there forever. But when I had a child, there were some things that had happened where my ex-mother-in-law definitely got involved where she didn't belong, and my ex took her side against me and demonstrated incredibly immature and juvenile behavior in some of these incidences. And there was a time that we were supposed to have company over, and he just took off for the weekend, so I was left to try to make excuses with this couple that came over for dinner, and he just disappeared. I had no idea where he went for the weekend. But there were things like, you know, my ex-mother-in-law taking something of my my child's and using it, you know, for a different purpose that was really dirty, and uh, scrubbing something, you know, and scrubbing some filthy thing with something that belonged to my child. And when I confronted my then-husband about it, you know, we went out to have a little talk, and he ran in the house and kind of vilified me to his mother, and she thinks you should do this, and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, really? You know, we just had a conversation as a, as a husband and wife, and you're, you're sharing this with your mother. Okay. But those are just a couple of episodes and incidences. But it became clearer and clearer that if I stayed in that relationship— I was acquiescing and accepting a role model and a way of life that I could not be at peace with. That was an, the antithesis of what I believed and felt. And so, um, I mean, I basically had a partner at this point that was not that involved in child rearing and taking care of our child. I had taken some time off from work and he was supposed to do the same subsequently and he declined to do that didn't bother telling me, I realized that I did not have a helpmate. There was not another parent to take care of this child. It was basically me. So basically I was a single parent, just you know, living under the guise of having a together unit. But these are the things, I just came to the decision that I could not live like this anymore and it would be false of me to maintain this structure where other people could come in and dictate to me how I should live my life in my, fam- my so-called family unit and he could do whatever he wanted. And then I would be setting up the role model that abusers are in charge and I have to do everything they say. I did not want to raise my child like this. So my child was the impetus for me to leave the marriage. Were there problems? Sure. I mean, we initially talked about when I had to break the news to him, I literally took my child someplace else. I did inform my mother and it was very hard to tell my mother and my parents and my family I was getting a divorce. This That was not easy. But I had to make clear to her that, you know, I was worried about my well-being and potentially my life. And I was pleased because she responded, well, you know, no one's happy about the sadness of a divorce and having to come to that decision. But my mother did support me. And so it wasn't like I didn't get vilified by her for that. So that was very comforting. And she came through on that one. But then I had to make a plan, you know, and then start filing for divorce. And I served, you know, and there was a period where he pled with me, don't do this, you know. And I and I went back on it for a while, for a few months. But then some things had happened, and I just, I sat there looking at my ex, and my now ex, and his family, 
And I just realized that I'm not raising this child in in this circle of these people. I, you know, I, not that she wouldn't have contact, but I cannot raise her as if this is all normal behavior. And so I went through the with the divorce. And I basically was threatened. There were different times that I was threatened to, and my ex threatened me because it had something to do with his sister's wedding. And I basically was threatened. He goes, if you do this, I will make your life miserable and it will take everything that you have from you. And for a period of time, he succeeded. In the many years since, I've managed to transcend that and I am not miserable. I've prevailed over him in many respects. So he's probably the miserable person. I'm not. But he did take everything away from me, literally. Probably I'm standing here and I'm able to even speak because I was very fortunate because while there would be more support I would have liked to have gotten in certain areas of my life, thankfully there were people who helped me. You know, my church people helped me. They were very supportive. There was a time there were court watches needed and these people came and did court watches. So those people helped me. There were some people that I worked with who was a librarian, but she also had done some training and she had been a uh, rape crisis. You know, she was a social worker, you know, secretly apparently. And she was, she was a huge help, you know, because she basically stood there and told me, you're not crazy. You're just surrounded by craziness, but you're not crazy. And that was, you know, just people saying the right thing to you at that moment, something that you have to hear. And sometimes you don't even, you're not fully able to take something in, but this is why it's important for people to say things. Don't keep quiet. Sometimes people need to hear something because they may not hear you right at that moment, but those words are still in their head. And they one day they resonate. And that can be a lifeline to that person making a good decision later on or helping to crystallize what they need to do in their life. So I've been very grateful. Now, professionally, I paid a price because I think we live, well, not I think, I know we live in a society that does not understand domestic violence in all its permutations, in all its interpretations. That's why we have a lot of people ending up dead. You know, then people go, oh, I'm sorry. Well, people shouldn't have to be dead before we fix the problem. And people need to start waking up to the fact that a person doesn't have the right to control another person. You can have a relationship and that's, you have to, you know, set the ground rules in that relationship. That's fine. But those ground rules should not involve somebody taking control of your comings and goings and even your thoughts and your attitude and how you respond to them. That's not, because that's not a loving relationship. But those are abusive people. And right now in this society that we live in, they're enabled quite a bit. They're enabled through many times the police. In my personal circumstances, the police sided with the abuser. The court system sided with the abuser. And oftentimes people are encouraged, the victims or the people who've been victimized are encouraged to make peace or make amends. And I think it's ludicrous. That person didn't do anything wrong. Why did you just hold the, the abuser accountable? And my abuser has never really been held accountable. He's gotten pretty much everything he wants, you know, because again, he promised to make my life miserable to take everything from me. And that included my child. And that's a very high price to pay. And that's one of the disastrous results of our society not listening and not being cognizant about what abusers are capable of, even if you don't see bruises. They're very good at what they do. And the higher up the social strata they are, middle class, upper middle class, well off, the more fine-tuned they become. They're quite adept at what they do. So they make the person that they're victimizing look as if they're imbalanced and out of kilter when in fact they're the ones that really have a serious problem. I guess, too, in terms of getting support, I wished in my personal work situation, while there were some individuals who supported me and totally got it, there were many more. And, and given the, the context of being in an educational environment where we're supposedly dealing with enlightened people because they are quote-unquote educated, it's appalling how few educators really understand what domestic violence is. And if they don't understand what it is, how can they possibly recognize it in their students that they're supposed to be protecting? Because that is something that educators are charged with. They are supposed to be able to protect or bring to the authority's attention that someone's being harmed. And yet, I would dare say the majority of educators in this country at all levels are woefully ill-informed and uninformed 
about what domestic violence really is and what abusers really do. So they are not supportive. And so in that, in that milieu, I did not get supported. I paid a heavy price professionally for that as well. So I would say that there were people, again, you know, my mom supported me, you know, as much as she could. Some relatives couldn't make sense of it, and, and it's fine. I've come to terms with that. You know, people are limited by their own upbringing, their cultural mores. But my church that I was going to, incredibly supportive, and they helped me get through a lot. So I guess basically if somebody said, well, what can I do to help somebody who's gone through this, who's been in an abusive situation, how can I help? Well, it's a lot to make sense of. It's a lot for that person who's gone through it for for them to make sense of what they've experienced. So it's hard for people on the outside to fully comprehend that. But I think kindness is very important. Asking them, well, if you're going to move, can I help you move? Do you need some furniture? Or do you need a ride someplace? Do you need some, you know, need to go to get get to the grocery store? Because a lot of people who've been abused may not have the transportation, may not have the wherewithal to be mobile, you know, anymore. They may not have the mobility to access what they need. So, you know, giving people a ride back and forth once a week or a couple times a month or whatever. Obviously, in some cases, money is helpful. Sometimes, too, just taking people out. And if a woman is in, in a difficult situation, she may not have any uh, disposable income, you know, to do anything extra. And I remember there was a former colleague of mine, and there were a few times that we went out, we'd we'd go to church, and then afterwards she took me out for a coffee and a pastry. And I was going through a very difficult time. And just that act of her treating me with kindness and, and normalizing me, listening to me and not acting like there was something wrong with me, you know, that I must have done something wrong. Treating people with support, understanding, respect. Respect what they've gone through. You may not be able to make heads or tails of it. It may be counterintuitive because it is. It really is counterintuitive. It may not be something you can comprehend because you don't think like that. Most reasonable people do not think like abusers. That's why it's difficult to understand. But just give the person the time and the space to respect that maybe they just need somebody to listen to them. You know, not even necessarily advice, but just take a few minutes to listen to them. And I know sometimes it's very difficult for people to hear these stories. And you don't necessarily want to be around it all the time. But, you know, I think people going through these difficulties need to start finding their way back to normalcy because normalcy has been taken from them by the abuser. Being a normal person, being a rational person, having that barometer of what it means to have a, a, you know, quote unquote, normal life. And the more another person can help them, you know, just sit and talk. Maybe it's not even about the abuse. Nobody wants to talk about that all the time either. But just talking about other things, but giving somebody the time of day and the space just to listen and check in on how you're doing. Is everything okay? And be honest too. So listen, I know your story is really tough. And, you know, I, I, I have a hard time listening to it. I've got to be honest. It's a hard thing to listen to, but I'll do the best I possibly can, you know, and I'll let you know if I want to change the topic. You know, we'll talk about movies or whatever else, but I just want you to know that you know, if you need me, call me, text me. You know, it's sometimes it's just little things. It really is little things that people can help. For the for the abuse victims, too. I mean, I, I find it helpful. One of the things I've tried to do is be helpful to other people. And that helps normalize me as well. It helps me transcend what has been done to me. So I see it as part of a bigger picture. But for people, instead of just standing by and saying, I don't know what to do, well... Just be a human being, you know, and don't ostracize people. It's very easy to ostracize victims of abuse. You know, we're at a place in this in our culture that if somebody comes into work and they tell you they've got cancer, everybody rallies around that person. I've seen it firsthand. People rally around that person. They take meals over. They'll take them anywhere because we've accepted that now, whereas 50 years ago, you didn't talk about it. But the topic of abuse is still verboten, basically. Nobody really wants to deal with that icky topic, and it's got to be spoken about. So we've got to make it where, 
you know, I don't want to have potluck parties about abuse, but nonetheless, people who've been impacted by abuse shouldn't feel ashamed that they went through because they really didn't do anything wrong. You can always question, well, why'd you stay, you know, this and that. And it's very difficult. I don't think anybody on the outside can really comprehend why that that person stayed. There's a myriad of reasons why you do. A lot of it has to do with your upbringing. It has to do with your social conditioning. If you're a professional, how did it impact you professionally? Because trust me, it really does. You know, this is the crazy thing. The abuser is not really getting punished. They they still hold their jobs and they still walk around and you'll hear things like, oh, she just made this stuff up and she's terrible and that poor guy. Nobody really knows what went on in that house except those people there. But people need to really educate themselves on what abuse really is. And it doesn't just always look like black and blue. It doesn't come in the colors of black and blue. It has a huge impact. And and for children especially, and, and if if somebody's abusing their partner, they're very likely to be abusing their children as well. And so, um, again, it takes me back to the educational environment where you've got teachers and educators and people in that milieu who really do not understand it. And because they don't understand it and they're not informed about it, they are missing opportunities to help children and to help other victims of abuse. So I just think people need to wake up. And thankfully, we're in a time where women or victims of abuse are starting to feel like they can come forward. And I do think it's opening the floodgates. But I feel very sad for all the women who've gone before us, for all the victims of abuse, boys, girls, grown women, some men, who've gone before us and didn't have anybody to listen. And they they had to keep this and take this on and take this on as a burden of shame that they never should have taken on. So I guess in honor of my grandmother and my aunt, I'm trying to make this a better place that you didn't have. And I'm trying to make this a better place that children of the future will not have to go through. And then we will start changing things because we have to first acknowledge that this is happening and the people who are committing it, the abusers, need to be held accountable. That's the first part of making change. Acknowledge that you have a problem first because we shouldn't have to live like this. I hope you found this week's episode and our debut survivor story helpful. By developing this common language of understanding, all of us can be better at recognizing signs of abuse of power in our lives, the tactics that may be used to do so, and how we can respond and or resist and stay safe. You may recognize that many of these tactics are reflected in the everyday tweets and narratives that are being put forth by members of our current administration and the news media. To resist effectively, we must first recognize these tactics and choose a different path. Let's help each other learn how to be upstanders in each other's lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can do it. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuen. Thank you. Thank you.